0: Welcome to The Set of the Crime, your weekly Florida and federal criminal case law update podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky, of Shorstein Lesnetsky and Guy. And each week, I'm going to release one episode reviewing the previous week's Florida BCA and Florida Supreme Court decisions, and one episode reviewing the previous week's 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So whether you're on your way to court, taking a job, or otherwise have some time to spare, join me each week to get your dose of the latest criminal case opinions. All right, welcome back to the site of the Crime podcast. We're talking about our federal 11th Circuit criminal case law update for the week of November 28, 2022 through December 2nd, 2, 2022. And this week we have five cases that we're going to talk about. There were some more that were uh, miscellaneous cases or compassionate release and uh, substantive uh, reasonableness of the uh, sentence cases uh, that we're not going to talk about, and those will be uh, listed, and they will have links in the uh, case show notes. So if you want to check those cases out, please go to the uh, case show, uh, the showcase notes. Uh, and we're coming out swinging today um, because we are going to start off with a published decision from the 11th Circuit, and it's entitled United States v. Donald Trump. So anytime you say the word Trump, a lot of emotions uh, tend to come to the forefront, uh, but we're going to keep it uh, nice and non political here. And we are going to just look at the latest case that uh, has some uh, criminal uh, implications from the execution of the search warrant down at uh, Trump's Mar a Lago home. So, our first case today is United States v. Trump. It's an 11th Circuit published decision, and it was released December 2nd, 2022. And this is an appeal out of the Southern District of Florida that stems from that search warrant that was executed on uh, Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. As Trump's presidential term came to an end, he had movers transfer documents from his White House, um, from the White House to his Mar-a-Lago residence. And the National Archives and Records Administration uh, subsequently contacted him to obtain missing presidential records pursuant to the Presidential Records Act. And the administration and, and the Trump's attorneys went through the months, you know th- months and months of negotiations, uh, and eventually Trump transferred 15 boxes of documents back to the uh, National Archives. The boxes contained different things like newspapers, magazines, articles, photos, notes, presidential correspondence, classified records. Um, And I think there's a photo of Celine Dion or something like that. And the National Archive notified the Department of Justice about those classified documents that were strewn about throughout the 15 boxes of documents. And then they notified uh, Trump that they plan to provide the FBI access to the contents Of those 15 boxes. So the FBI reviewed the records once they got access to the boxes and they found 184 documents that were classified, including 25 classified as top secret. So the FBI obtained information that there were more classified documents at the Mar-a-Lago home. So they obtained a grand jury subpoena and they served it on Trump. And Trump's attorney's provided the FBI with an envelope that was wrapped in tape, which is consistent with the handling procedures for classified documents, I suppose. Um, Or at least that's what the decision says. I I would think there'd be something a little more sophisticated. But uh, just an envelope with tape will uh, suffice for handling classified documents. And the envelope contained 38 classified documents, including 17 that were classified as top secret. The envelope also contained a declaration that there was a diligent search and any and all responsive documents had been produced. So the FBI again obtained information that there were still more classified documents that remained at the residence. So the Department of Justice sought a search warrant and a magistrate issued the warrant. The warrant affidavit set out a protocol to create a privilege review team where agents that were not participating in the investigation would review the material to protect Trump's attorney-client privilege. So the FBI executed the search warrant, as we all saw on TV, and they seized approximately 13,000 documents. Within those 13,000 documents, over 100 were marked confidential, secret, or top secret. Three documents, marked classified, were found in Trump's desk. So Trump subsequently filed a motion for judicial oversight and additional relief, and he was asking the district judge to appoint a special master and join review of the documents until that special master was appointed, to require the government to give a detailed list of the seized items, and to order the government to return items not within the scope of the search warrant. The motion was filed as a civil uh, filing, with no statement of how the district court had any jurisdiction. But it did state that it was a precursor to a Rule 41, subsection G, motion, which allows a person subject to an illegal search uh, and seizure to get their property back. So Trump's attorney subsequently argued that the court had equitable and ancillary jurisdiction. The district court decided that it would appoint a special master, and would require the government to provide a detailed list of seized items relying on its inherent authority and Rule 53, subsection B1, which states, before appointing a master, the court must give the parties notice and an opportunity to be heard. In the district court's order, it barred the government from using any of the seized documents until the special master could review them. The district court relied on equitable jurisdiction and inherent supervisory authority. So the government filed a notice of appeal and a motion uh, for a partial stay of the injunction so it could continue to use the documents. And the district court denied the partial stay and appointed a special master. The government then sought a partial stay from the 11th Circuit, which granted the stay, concluding that the district court likely had no equitable jurisdiction to issue the, the order. So then Trump applied for relief with the Supreme Court, and that was denied. So on the appeal to the 11th Circuit, the 11th uh, concluded that the district court lacked jurisdiction to consider Trump's motion and to issue any orders relating to that motion. And in its opinion, the 11th Circuit repeatedly stressed how rare equitable jurisdiction is. It is appropriate only in exceptional cases where equity demands intervention. It's a familiar rule that courts of equity do not ordinarily restrain criminal prosecutions. The 11th Circuit has developed four factors uh, in Ritchie v. Smith when determining whether a court can exercise equitable jurisdiction in the case of a seizure of property. So the first factor is whether the government displayed a callous disregard for the plaintiff's constitutional rights. The second factor is whether the plaintiff has an individual interest in and need for the material whose return he seeks. The third factor is whether the plaintiff would be irreparably injured by the denial of the return of the property. And fourth factor is whether the plaintiff has an adequate remedy at law for the redress of his grievance. So here, applying the four Ritchie factors, the 11th Circuit determined that a decision in favor of Trump would allow any subject of a search warrant to invoke a federal course equitable jurisdiction, and they don't want that. Applying the first Ritchie callous disregard factor, the 11th Circuit looked at the district court's finding that there had not been a callous disregard for Trump's constitutional rights and looked at the fact that Trump did not contest that finding and found that the record showed no callous disregard and therefore Trump had not established the first Ritchie factor. And you have to establish that first Ritchie factor to move on. So he loses based on that first factor. But the court went on uh, as an academic exercise and decided to uh, review the other three factors as well. And so the second Ritchie factor was having an individual interest and need for the documents. And the court found that the relevant inquiry is if he needs the documents. Trump's passports were seized, but they were returned. But his brief did not explain what other documents he needed or why he needed them. And because specific documents weren't identified and because he did not lay out how he would be harmed by the seizure and retention, this factor weighs against Trump as well. So the court next turned to the third Ritchie factor, whether Trump would be irreparably injured by denial of return of the property. And the district court, uh, the lower district court, identified the harm to Trump in the form of possible disclosure of sensitive information to the public and the government's potential use of privileged materials, and the stigma associated with the threat of future prosecution. However, the 11th Circuit found that disclosure of sensitive information would harm the United States and its citizens, and not Trump. And the findings of the district court would apply to nearly every seizure following a search warrant. Therefore, the court found that the district court's reasoning did not support extraordinary jurisdiction. So the third Ritchie factor weighs against Trump. So on to the fourth factor, whether Trump has an adequate remedy at law for the redress of the grievance. And here, the 11th Circuit rejected the district court's reasoning that Trump would have, no, would have no legal means to obtain his property and no knowledge when it would be returned. The court found that this was not a sufficient justification because it would apply in every search warrant seizure case. And the fact that the court was dealing with presidential and or personal documents didn't alter the the analysis at all. Trump didn't allege that any of his rights were violated, and if there is no constitutional violation, then there is no harm to be remedied. And it doesn't matter that the search involved the former president. The Ritchie test has been in place for nearly 50 years, and its limits apply no matter who the government is investigating. So finding all four Ritchie factors weighed against Trump The 11th Circuit vacated the district court's order and remanded for the district court to dismiss the civil action. So no special master. Order vacated and case remanded. Our second case today is United States v. Mencia, and this is an 11th Circuit unpublished decision that was released November 30th, 2022. Mencia is a remand from the U.S. Supreme Court in light of the RUIN decision, R-U-A-N v. United States. Dr. Mencia was a licensed physician who owned and operated a geriatric clinic, but prescribed an unusually high amount of pain medications. He had what he called Code G patients who didn't have insurance, would pay in cash, and would be prescribed Percocet, Xanax, and Soma, known as the Holy Trinity. Dr. Mencia would pre-sign prescriptions and would have his assistants fill out the prescriptions without Dr. Mencia ever having seen or examined many of those patients. This went on for a while until a pharmacist who was filling the prescriptions notified the DEA about the inordinate amount of oxycodone prescriptions coming from Dr. Mencia. Dr. Mencia was charged with conspiracy to commit healthcare fraud and several other charges. He was convicted... His appeal was affirmed on initial direct appeal and then the U.S. Supreme Court granted Mr. Mencia's pro se petition for writ of certiorari based on its recent decision in Ruan. The Supreme Court vacated the 11th Circuit's judgment and remanded for consideration of the case in light of Ruan. On remand, the 11th Circuit addressed the three initial arguments that the court originally rejected and a new argument on the sufficiency of the jury instructions in light of Ruan. Mr. Mencia first argued that the evidence was insufficient to support his conviction as to whether he knowingly or willingly distributed OxyContin in an unauthorized manner. Section 841 makes it illegal for anyone to knowingly or willingly distribute a controlled substance. But what about doctors? Don't they distribute controlled substances on a daily basis? Well, yes, and there is an exception for licensed healthcare professionals as long as the prescription is for, quote, a legitimate medical purpose in the usual course of professional practice, quote. So to convict a doctor, the government must prove that the doctor dispensed controlled substances for other than legitimate medical purposes in the usual course of professional practice, and that he did so knowingly and intentionally. The court has interpreted this to mean that the distri- distribution is unlawful if the prescription was not for a legitimate medical purpose, or the prescription was not made in the usual course of professional practice. In Ruan, the Supreme Court held that the government must also prove that the doctor knew that the prescriptions were unauthorized. So the knowing mens rea not only goes to the distribution, but also to whether the distribution was unauthorized. Here, even in light of the Ruan decision, the 11th Circuit held that the evidence was sufficient to convict Mr. Mencia. He prescribed an inordinate amount of Holy Trinity drugs for cash for select patients that he didn't examine, and those patients displayed obvious signs of drug-seeking behavior according to the court's reading of the record. So the court determined that the evidence was sufficient to establish not only that Mr. Mencia knowingly distributed the controlled substances, but also that he knew the prescriptions were unauthorized. The court next turned to Mr. Mencia's second claim, that the trial court erred in allowing a doctor to testify as an expert in an area that was outside her scope of professional practice. Under Federal Rule of Evidence 704, subsection B, in a criminal case, an expert witness must not state an opinion about whether the defendant did or did not have a mental state or condition that constitutes an element of the crime charged or of a defense. The expert cannot expressly state a conclusion that the defendant did or did not have the requisite intent, but can provide an opinion as to the facts that support such a conclusion. Here, the doctor expert testified that the prescriptions Dr. Mencia prescribed did not have a medical legitimate need. The doctor expert testified about Florida law relating to what is and what is not professional practice and gave the opinion that Dr. Mencia was acting outside that scope. The 11th held that the doctor expert's testimony was perfectly fine because she didn't testify that Dr. Mencia knowingly and intentionally acted outside the scope of the professional practice, only that he violated Florida law and acted outside the scope. So apparently, if she doesn't use a term knowingly in her testimony, she's good to go. She could testify as to her opinion about what he did, just not what he knew. Mr. Mencia also argued that the doctor expert's statement that a specific Florida statute carries criminal penalties should have been stricken is an incorrect statement of law. Here the court held that any error was harmless because whether there were criminal penalties under that state statute is immaterial to whether Dr. Mencia acted within the standards of professional practice and there was overwhelming evidence of his guilt. Another argument of Dr. Mencia's was that the district court erred in not granting a Daubert hearing to determine the admissibility of the expert testimony and that the disclosures by the government were untimely. In Daubert, the U.S. Supreme Court held that expert testimony is admissible under Federal Rule of Evidence 702. If the expert is qualified, the expert's methodology is reliable, and the testimony assists the trier of fact. As for methodology, Courts look at whether it can be and has been tested, whether the theory or technique has been subjected to peer review and publication, the known or potential rate of error, the existence and maintenance of standards controlling the technique's operation, and general acceptance. To determine whether the expert's methodology meets the Daubert standards, a district court can but is not required to conduct a Daubert hearing. Here, the court held that a Daubert hearing was not necessary and the government provided ample evidence of the expert's qualifications and the resources that he relied on, including applicable law and published sources generally accepted in the medical community. And the defense did not provide conflicting medical literature or expert testimony that may have warranted a Daubert hearing. As to the timeliness of the government's disclosures, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 16, Subsection A1G, requires at the defendant's request the government to give a defendant a written summary of any expert testimony it intends to use. The court will not reverse an untimely disclosure by the government unless the defendant's substantial rights are prejudiced. The defendant must prove that the untimely disclosure adversely affected the ability to present a defense. Here, the experts were disclosed less than two weeks before trial and one month after they were requested in writing by the defense. But Dr. Mencia did not establish prejudice. The government agreed to a continuance, but Dr. Mencia declined. Dr. Mencia presented a rebuttal witness to the experts, and he had time to obtain the government experts' disciplinary records to use during cross-examination. And even if the disclosures were vague, Dr. Mencia has not been prejudiced because he presented conflicting testimony from his expert witness. Dr. Mencia next argued that the Controlled Substances Act is unconstitutionally vague, but his argument is foreclosed by United States v. Collier, where the 11th Circuit held that doctors had sufficient notice of what conduct violates the statute through the phrase, in the course of his pro- professional practice. Therefore, the statute is not unconst- unconstitutionally vague. Then the court came to the meat of the remand on the Rwanda decision. Dr. Mencia argued that the good-faith defense jury instruction given to the jury did not comply with the Rouen decision. Only one problem. Dr. Mencia is the one who asked for that jury instruction. So he invited the error and therefore waived his claim. But the 11th Circuit still went through an academic exercise, again, of dismantling that claim, even if he did not waive it. Ruan held that the government must prove that the doctor knew the prescriptions were unauthorized, but the Supreme Court did not discuss whether the current jury's instructions complied with its decision. In other words, the Supreme Court didn't address whether the current instructions were sufficient to instruct the jury that the government must find that Dr. Mencia knew the prescriptions were unauthorized or whether the error was harmless, if there was error. So on the merits of Mr. Or of Dr. Mencia's argument, the 11th Circuit found that the good faith instruction tended, uh, tendered to the jury required them to determine whether the government proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Dr. Mencia knew that the prescriptions were not authorized. The instruction specifically stated that the government must prove that Dr. Mencia knew the unlawful purpose of the plan and willfully joined in it. Therefore, the 11th Circuit found that the instruction required the government to prove that Dr. Mencia knew the prescriptions were unauthorized. So Dr. Mencia lost on both counts. He waived the issue by inviting the error, and even if he hadn't, he lost the argument on the merits. So case affirmed. Our third case today is United States v. Noda. This is an 11th Circuit unpublished decision that was released November ninth, 2022. Noda is a Sixth Amendment confrontation clause case involving Zoom testimony. Ms. Noda was charged with multiple counts of wire fraud and aggravated identi- identity theft. At a status conference in June of 2021, Ms. Noda requested a trial in two months because she was pregnant. About a month later, Ms. Noda filed a motion for continuance to allow the defense more time to prepare, and that motion was denied. Ms. Noda's attorney subsequently filed a notice of trial conflict, and the district court reset the trial date for the next week. At another status hearing, Ms. Noda again requested a continuance, citing COVID this time and the fact that she was pregnant. The district court denied the motion based on the safety protocols it had put in place, including a face mask requirement and social distancing requirements. Ms. Noda filed another motion for continuance, again citing COVID, and that motion too was denied. There were subsequent back-and-forth motions and orders, and the case went to trial at the scheduled time. During a four-day trial, 11 witnesses testified. Ms. Noda worked for a landscape maintenance company, and she was responsible for processing payroll one day when miss nota wasn't at work another employee discovered that miss nota had payroll checks made out to terminated employees and routed those funds to miss nota's account during the trial the government alerted the court that one of the witnesses who had already testified came down with covid after testifying but they wanted to recall that witness to testify about an online chat thread that they just learned about after his testimony. The government wanted the witness to testify via video. Noda objected, but the district court allowed the video testimony. The witness then testified via video that he had an online chat with someone from Noda's employment with a username of Christy, where Christy asked if she could have certain pay stubs received electronically for certain employees, while others were received by paper. The witness testified that he answered that all of the pay stubs had to either be electronic or they all had to be paper. Ms. Noda was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to the top end of the 70 months with a guideline range of 61 to 70 months. On appeal, Ms. Noda argued that her Sixth Amendment right to confront witnesses against her was violated when the trial court allowed the witness to testify via video, as opposed to in person. In general, the Confrontation Clause guarantees a defendant a face-to-face meeting with the witnesses appearing before the trier of fact. Here, the 11th Circuit determined whether any error was harmless. The court addressed the Delaware v. Van Arsdall factors. The first factor is the importance of the witness's testimony in the prosecution's case. The second is whether the testimony was cumulative. The third is the presence or absence of evidence corroborating or contradicting the testimony of the witness on material points. The fourth is the extent of cross-examination otherwise permitted. And the fifth factor is the overall strength of the prosecution's case. Here the court held that any error was harmless. First, the testimony was undisputed, cumulative, and of minimal value to the prosecution's robust case, in the words of the 11th. Other witnesses could have offered the same evidence. There was no indication that the witness had any unique specialized knowledge or expertise about the evidence, and Ms. Nota was allowed to cross-examine the witness at length. So the court next turned to Ms. Nota's claim that the district court erred in denying her motions for continuance. Trial courts are afforded great latitude with respect to scheduling, and judges enjoy broad discretion in ruling on motions for continuance. Error only arises when the denial is arbitrary. And unreasonable and severely prejudices the moving party. Here the court held that Miss Nota showed no prejudice. So finally, the court held that Miss Nota's sentence was substantively reasonable because it was well below the statutory maximum and was within the guideline range. So case affirmed. Our fourth case today is United States v. Vadrine. This is an 11th Circuit unpublished decision that was released November 29th, 2022. Vadrine is a search warrant suppression of evidence case involving delay. Mr. Vadrine was arrested for driving a stolen vehicle. During an inventory search, officers found seven recoded credit cards, two fake IDs, and two target credit card applications. So the Miami-Dade police seized three cell phones from the car and then contacted the Secret Service to notify them of what they found. Fourteen days after Mr. Vadrine's arrest, a Secret Service agent obtained a search warrant for the seized phones. The data was extracted, but it wasn't analyzed for 21 days. In the meantime, law enforcement executed another search warrant on Mr. Vadrine's apartment and obtained additional criminating evidence. Mr. Vadreen moved to suppress evidence obtained from the searches of his phone, phones, and his apartment, and that motion was denied after a hearing. Mr. Vadreen was convicted, and he appealed to the 11th. Mr. Vadreen's first argument was that the 14-day delay between his arrest and the issuance of the search warrant for the contents of his phones was an unreasonable violation of the Fourth Amendment. The court addressed the relevant reasonableness factors— in determining whether a search and seizure meets constitutional muster. First, the significance of the interference with the person's possessory uh, interest. Second, whether the individual consented to the seizure. Third, the duration of the delay. Fourth, the government's legitimate interest in holding the property as evidence. And fifth, whether law enforcement diligently pursued their investigation. When determining whether law enforcement was diligent, the court looks at the nature and complexity of the investigation, the quality of the warrant application and amount of time the court expects such a warrant would take to prepare, and any evidence proving or disproving law enforcement's diligence in obtaining the warrant. There is no bright line rule. The 11th Circuit has determined that a 21-day delay was unreasonable where the officer didn't see any urgency and traveled out of state for training. And it has held that a 25-day delay was reasonable where the officer exchanged edits with a prosecutor and there was a very substantial amount of information in the final warrant. Here, the court held that the government had a legitimate interest in holding the phones as evidence. There was substantial evidence of sophisticated fraud and every reason to believe that the phones contained evidence of that fraud. And the agent was diligent because she immediately began investigating Mr. Vitrine She started drafting the warrant within two days. She ordered and examined a surveillance video. She followed leads, exchanged edits with the AUSA, drafted a memo to the Miami-Dade police to obtain the cell phones from them, and completed the warrant affidavit, which contained information from the previous steps that we just discussed. Therefore, the court held that the 14-day delay was not unreasonable. So Mr. Vadrine's second argument was that the search warrant for the apartment lacked probable cause because it relied on information obtained from the search of the phones. The court quickly did away with this fruit of the poisonous tree argument, finding that because there was no unreasonable delay relating to the phones, there was no poison to taint the fruit. So this argument was rejected. Mr. Vadrine's third argument was that the search of the phones was unreasonable because the data wasn't analyzed for 21 days after it was extracted. Federal rule of criminal procedure 41 Subsection E governs warrant execution and Subsection E281 requires that the warrant be executed within a specified time no longer than 14 days. Rule 41 E2B controls warrant execution for electronically stored information and provides that the time for executing the warrant refers to the seizure or on-site copying of the media or information, and not to any later off-site copying or reviewing. Here, the court held that the data extraction was completed within the rule's 14-day deadline. The rule clearly allows for the later review of that timely extracted data. Once the data is extracted, the warrant is considered executed for Rule 41 purposes and law enforcement may analyze the data at a later date. So how long after the extraction is too long? Well, the court didn't answer that question, but did say that a month's long delay is clearly different than the week's delay in this case. So the court upheld the reasonableness of the searches and rejected Mr. Vadreen's arguments. So Mr. Vadrine also argued that Capital One does not qualify as a victim under the MVRA. But Mr. Vadrine only filed one notice of appeal after a first judgment was entered. A subsequent amended judgment was entered, adding the restitution amount. But Mr. Vidrine never filed the notice of appeal from that amended judgment. Rule 4, subsection B, requires an appellant to file a separate notice of appeal from an un- amended judgment, even if a notice of appeal from an earlier judgment is already pending. This is a claims processing rule. So if the government raised it, the court must dismiss it. If the government doesn't raise it, the court won't dismiss it. So what do you think the government did? Issue dismissed. So case affirmed in part, dismissed in part, judgment vacated and remanded only to correct a clerical error. Our fifth and final case today is United States v. Yager. This is an 11th Circuit unpublished decision that was released November 28, 2022. Yager is an upward variance challenge to the guidelines calculation case. Law enforcement received a call about a shooting where the caller identified the vehicle. When an officer observed the vehicle, he attempted to pull it over. A man fled from the passenger seat and was carrying a rifle. Shortly thereafter, someone called 911 and told the dispatcher that he would kill the police if they didn't back off. Mr. Yager, who was the caller, also used racially provocative language during that call. The police obtained an arrest warrant for Mr. Yager for attempted murder, making terrorist threats, and attempting to elude. A few months later, police were executing the arrest warrant when they found Mr. Yager in a shed. He surrendered without incident. Officers found five guns, thousands of rounds of ammunition, and marijuana. They also found a jammed 308 caliber rifle and a loaded .22 rifle hanging just outside the door of the shed. Mr. Yager had a prior felony conviction, so he was charged with 922G, possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. Mr. Yager pled guilty, and at sentencing, the district court applied a four-level enhancement under Section 2K2.1, subsection B6B for using or possessing any firearm or ammunition in connection with another felony offense. The predicate felony offense was determined to be possession of marijuana for other than personal use under Alabama Code Section 13A-12-213. Mr. Yager objected, arguing that the marijuana was only for personal use. He also argued that there was no nexus between the possession of the firearms and the possession of marijuana. He claimed that the guns were for hunting. Without this enhancement, his guidelines would have been 30 to 37 months. And with the enhancement, his guidelines were 46 to 57 months. The district court overruled the objection, applied the enhancement, and sentenced Mr. Yager to 90 months, varying upward. The district court also made the statement, the only reason why there wasn't a shootout at the place was because the gun was apparently jammed. Mr. Yager appealed, arguing first that the district court's statement about the shootout was not supported by the evidence. But the 11th Circuit disagreed. The court noted that the district court stated that it would have upward varied regardless of whether Mr. Yager intended to have a shootout because he was basing it on the fact that Mr. Yager was set up to have a shootout. And the court found that the district court did not clearly err by applying an upward variance because it found Mr. Yager was set up for a shootout. Mr. Yager was wanted for attempted murder. He threatened to kill the police officers if they didn't back off. He used racial epithets. He was found in a shed with five guns and thousands of rounds of ammunition. And the police did not back off and instead pursued him and found him with everything he needed to carry out the threat. Mr. Yager next argued that the district court erred in applying a four-level enhancement for possessing a firearm in connection with a possession of marijuana for other than personal use offense. In applying the four-level enhancement, the district court gave a keen statement stating that it would have applied the same sentence even if the four-level enhancement didn't apply. So when there's a keen statement, the circuit court simply uh, looks at the guidelines as if the enhancement hadn't been applied and determines whether the sentence is unreasonable based on those lower guidelines. And as is par for the course, the court determined that the 90-month sentence was reasonable Even under the lower guideline range of 30 to 37 months. Mr. Yager had an outstanding warrant uh, for attempted murder and terroristic threats. He had multiple firearms and a large amount of ammunition. So, according to the 11th, the upward variance was appropriate in case of firm. And that's a wrap. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky, with Shorstein, Lesnetsky, and Guyon. And this was another episode of the Site of the Crime podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button. And if you'd like to keep up to date on all the latest criminal law cases, subscribe to The Site of the Crime. And if you like the show, please review us. This will help your colleagues find us, and they too can stay up to date. Each week, we'll release separate Florida and federal criminal law episodes with the previous week's court opinions. Look in the episode description for timestamps for each case in each jurisdiction. Thanks for joining us at the site of the crime.